Thank you, Anna Andrews, for that introduction. And thank you to Anna, Marty Grundy, and Abby Matchett, who have served as a support committee for me for the last few months as I prepared to bring a message to you today and throughout the week. I am so happy to be here. If I break into tears at any point, they are tears of joy for this homecoming for me. And please, if you cannot hear at any point, raise your hand, because I do want you to be able to at least visibly or to audibly hear this. In fear and trembling, be, be bold in God's service. I love this call to New England Early Meeting Sessions. It has been for me a rich source of inspiration as I prepared to bring a message and as I prayed for this body, for you to receive this and to be in community with one another during this week. Today and in these Bible half hours, we will be looking at scripture, Bible verses, as well as the words of friends, both those who are ancestors and those who are still living today. I will share stories about how I see the work of the Friends Committee on National Legislation being bold in God's service. And above all, I hope that the messages I bring fill you with hope. Hope for the world we live in, hope for your Quaker meeting, for this yearly meeting, and hope about your own spiritual conditions. In addition to talking about hope, we'll be talking about courage, which we heard a little bit about already this morning from our junior high friends, about truth, faith, but above all about love, about how the power of God's love fills us, surrounds us, how the power of God's love makes possible what we think is impossible, how the power of God's love transcends this epical time we live in, how our Quaker faith and practice equips and teaches us to love thy neighbor, no exceptions. So today we're going to start with the kingdom of God. And here's my thesis. I believe that we are bold in God's service when we live into the kingdom of God, that this is lifetime work. Indeed, it is our faith and practice. So I'll confess to you that the kingdom of God was really not the topic I wanted to talk about. Because for me, it carries associations of Bible stories that I learned as a child that kind of perplexed me. Is the kingdom of God the same as the kingdom of heaven? And what does it mean in the Lord's Prayer when, it, when we say, Thy kingdom come? And what about the patriarchy? Why is it a kingdom male and not a queendom female? I'm not a theologian or a Bible scholar. However, I do find enough Bible passages, resources, um, and Quaker ministry that speaks to my spiritual condition. So with the idea of seeking the kingdom of God as the way that we can, with fear and trembling, be bold in God's service, I thought it important to start with an attempt to define the kingdom of God. Of course, 
The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is really a good place to get some idea of a description, if not a definition, of the kingdom of God. These chapters are often the ones friends turn to for biblical inspiration as Jesus lays out the teachings of how to live in this world. There is enough in these three chapters to create Bible half hours for every day of the year. My references will be selective. It is in these chapters that Jesus tells us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That the golden rule is stated, whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. And that we are told to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. When we seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness, we are focused on understanding and living in to the life and the power. We are practicing simplicity. Living simply so that others may simply live means living an undivided life. So many friends have written about this idea and discipline of leading an undivided life, but I like what Lloyd Lee Wilson says. Simplicity is the name we give to our effort to free ourselves to give full attention to God's small voice. The sum of our efforts to subtract from our lives everything that competes with God for our attention and our hearing. As, we, uh, as I talk to you over the next few days, I'll talk about practices of friends, discernment, waiting worship, plain speaking, and how these practices help us in what Lloyd Lee calls the spirituality of subtraction. It is also the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33 that Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer with the line, Thy kingdom come. So about uh, 10 years ago, specifically 2005 and 2006, Friends Journal had a couple of articles, one by Paul Buckley about the Lord's Prayer and another by Elisha Parks. And I remembered reading those, and so I went into the archives and went back and took a look at what they said, and it was very helpful to, to read again. I gained new insight into that term, thy kingdom come, and my own sense of discomfort. Buckley refers to the Greek translation of kingdom. And forgive me for mispronunciation, but the word is basileia, B-A-S-I-L-E-I-A, as a spiritual state dedicated to God. And Parks translates the line, Altogether, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, as this. Make manifest to the world a vision of your perfect future, so that all may begin to work for its realization. Make manifest to the world a vision of your perfect future, so that all may begin to work for its realization. This is what I believe that... Uh, Douglas Gwynn names as the kingdom, the here and now work. Jesus doesn't directly define the kingdom of God. Rather, he spoke in parables, in metaphors, about the conditions of the kingdom. Not a physical kingdom ruled by a monarch, but a spiritual state occupied by the spirit. Characteristics of this state are justice, peace, compassion, righteousness. Indeed, We are all part of the kingdom that is becoming, 
as we discover more deeply by recognizing that of God in ourselves and in everyone we meet. There are times in our own monthly and yearly meetings that we have difficulty acknowledging that of God in each person. Sometimes this is even a difficult practice in our families. So how do we see the kingdom of God? How do we live into this kingdom of God with people who we see really different from ourselves because of educational attainment or profession or religion, ethnicity, gender, geographic location of where they live? or political beliefs? How are we living the truth that we are called to love thy neighbor with no exceptions? Well, here's what I'm doing. I'm talking to the elected officials of my country who every day are making life and death decisions for you and for me, for the people in our neighborhoods and in our communities, and for people around the world. I'm talking to them about turning U.S. foreign policy away from militarism and towards diplomacy and peace building, about ending the reliance on a carbon economy and taking action to mitigate global warming, about creating a just immigration and refugee policy that recognizes the inherent worth of every human being, about reforming the policies that have built a scaffolding of structural racism in our criminal justice, elections, human services, and educational systems. On behalf of the Friends Committee on National Legislation, by showing the hope of, and possibility of what is not yet but what could be, I am talking to them about the kingdom of God. Early friends were quite familiar with the kingdom of God, Gerard Guitan, an Australian friend and author of the 2012 book, The Early Quakers in the Kingdom of God, has written fairly extensively and done some research on this topic, and I just discovered him. Um, didn't have a chance to get through the book, but I did discover a wonderful pamphlet called, and get this title because it's really great, Recovering the Lost Radiance, The Kingdom of God, The Early Friends, and the Future of Quakerism. Recovering the Lost Radiance. It was very helpful for me in understanding how friends have interpreted the kingdom of God. Guiton says that in over 90% of the early tracts, the terms kingdom or some language describing early friends' understanding of the kingdom were used, including covenant of peace taken from Ezekiel 34.25. And I want to quote Guiton's question to us. The centrality of the kingdom to Jesus and the first friends touches us today. Why is it not consciously the basis of our concerns for peace, justice, and mercy when it is the foundation of our testimonies? Why is it not again consciously the central motivation of our service organizations and our interactions with authorities? At the Friends Committee on National Legislation, the central motivation is the kingdom of God. We seek a world free of war and the threat of war. We seek a society with equity and justice for all. We seek a community in which every person's potential may be fulfilled. We seek an earth restored. When I first arrived at FCNL in 2011 to serve as executive secretary, one of my colleagues said, 
we need to know your vision of the organization. And I thought about that for a little while, uh, wanting to be a very proactive leader. Um, but my response was that I could not come up with anything better than that vision of what we call the We Seeks. It is a kingdom of God statement. It greets me every day when I walk into my office on Capitol Hill, and it is the framework for FCNL's policy statement titled, The World We Seek, a statement that friends across the country have helped us develop by giving input into this. It guides the choices we make in establishing legislative priorities and in choosing the bills we will lobby on and what strategies we will follow. The presence of love, another term for the kingdom of God, is the foundation of the faith and testimonies of the Religious Society of Friends. We live in a culture, we live in a political time that cries out for the presence of love, that calls us to revealing the possibility of a world free of war, a society with equity and justice for all, and an earth restored. In the wonderful Quaker Speak videos developed by John Watt for, and distributed by Friends Publishing Corporation, which includes people in this audience I know, it covers a whole host of issues. But there is one that's specifically about the kingdom of God, and I went back and listened to what Friends today have to say about this. You'll recognize some of these names. Cody Hirsch. This kingdom of God is here and it's coming. What I experience as the place we arrive at in a gathered meeting for worship is a lifting of the cloud cover of seeing how it is already here. Micah Bale says of the kingdom of God, the reality in which we live in the ways that God is calling us to live. Vanessa July, everyone has value and we are actually able to see that of God in every person. Christopher Salmond, it is the ultimate reality. We can access it through worship and mystical practice. It is underneath the current reality. Sue Penn, something that is just and loving and of course peaceful. The rational part of my head says that this is just a metaphor and the mystical side says that it is here now. And Walter Sullivan, it is already and is constantly becoming. What canst thou say about the covenant of love? The, excuse me, the covenant of peace, the presence of love in your own life. Are we co-creating the kingdom of God in our meetings and through our actions? A question that I often get asked when I speak to Quakers, and particularly to the young adults who come to work at FCNL, is, how do you keep doing that work? How do you not despair? And isn't it difficult to be in Washington, D.C. in the midst of turmoil? Yes, it is difficult to be in the midst of political turmoil, to be on the defensive for laws or policies that defend human rights, civil liberties, to be constantly vigilant about the federal budget, the cuts to programs that help people who are poor, the addition of weapons of destruction, to see regulations that protect our air and water rolled back, to recognize the fragile state of our electoral system. We can point to daily incidents and tweets that challenge our work at FCNL to lobby for peace and justice. And we are not always successful, but we are always faithful. 
Here's what I want to say. If our work for social justice or for peace or for the care of the planet is motivated only by anger, frustration, sympathy, a thirst for power or heartbreak, we will despair and we will burn out. Back to Gerard Guiton who states, the kingdom is our vocation, the controlling purpose of our lives individually and corporately. It is the light, God in action, and is always revelatory and revolutionary. The kingdom then can be best appreciated as a radical encounter with hope. A radical encounter with hope. I experience these radical encounters with hope often. I'm going to share one story from last summer. In the midst of the fight, and I will use the term fight, although it is not a term we use at FCNL. We try to eschew military language, but it was a struggle to prevent cuts to the Affordable Care Act. And this is a story, I believe, about community, witness, and hope. It's a story about the community that FCNL has on the Hill in Washington, D.C., working with other faith-based organizations. It's a very important part of our work. It's a story about witness because of the faithfulness that all of us shared in being vigilant and being persistent about this effort. And it's a story of hope. So uh, we had agreed to work together closely. We were working closely with uh, Network, which is a Catholic lobby. Some of you may know Sister Simone Campbell, who has been touring the country with nuns on the bus. Um, but we also worked with the Episcopalians and with Bread for the World and um, with the Lutherans and uh, the, many of the Catholic orders who were lobbying on this issue. And the, the focus of our work was certainly about the entirety of the Affordable Care Act, but we were most solidly concerned with cuts to Medicaid, particularly cuts that would come as a result of expansion that had been provided. And the great news is that we were pretty effective at being able to convey the message that Medicaid is health care for millions of people. And it is an essential part of the welfare and life of millions of people around this country. So if you follow politics at all, you won't be surprised that the thrust of our lobbying was on a small handful of senators. We really try to think strategically. We talk to everyone, but often the votes will come down to a few. And I've already talked to a couple of people who know that Senator Collins of Maine is one of those few people who we are consistently in dialogue with. So one of the strategies we tried is that sometimes we fly people into Washington to have meetings with their lawmakers. In this case, we did a fly out. So I got to go up to Portland, Oregon uh, to uh, be with friends from Portland, but also to, with the uh, head of the Sisters of Mercies um, advocacy person. We had a meeting in Senator Collins' office that was very cordial. She very well knew the faith community and particularly knew Friends Committee on National Legislation and Quakers. She had heard from all of you. Um, we didn't meet directly with the senator. We met with her aide. But it was a very powerful, um, it was very powerful for me. It was an experience where it was really clear to me that the constituent voices are having an impact and that the constituent voice is not just the single voice or the once in a while, but the persistent prophetic lobby is so, so essential. 
The other thing we did is we did fly um, someone in. So we flew in David Bance uh, from Alaska. David is, comes to Washington fairly regularly. He's a member of our executive committee. And every time David comes, he meets with Senator Murkowski and Senator Sullivan. Now, the benefit of being from a small state, and I don't mean geographically small, I mean population small, although Rhode Island counts in this category too, is that you actually can get to know. You can, you can have face-to-face -face meetings with your senators much more easily than our friends from New York or California, or possibly even Massachusetts, because your population is so big. So uh, David Bance came in, and he happened to come in. Um, he, Senator Murkowski actually knows him, and he happened to come in the day that uh, the Senate was caucusing um, to make a decision. They were having their uh, partisan carcasses, which they do, to kind of talk about the legislation coming forward. And it was the day that Senator McConnell was working with the Republican caucus. And so, and Lisa Murkowski is a Republican. And so we were in her office. It was Sister Simone and me and Rebecca Blatchley from the Episcopalians and David. And before the senator came into the meeting, her chief of staff said, you know, it's just frustrating to us that it's so the space for having bipartisan dialogue has really diminished. You know, it's just less and less than it used to be. The senator came in. She said, oh, hi, David. You know, she knows him by name. That was great. And she, uh, what she shared with us at that moment was, it was clear to me that she had spent a lot of time talking to her constituents. She talked specifically about going to farmer's markets and going out and listening and hearing people talk about uh, the challenge that their lives would have if they lost this uh, medical coverage and why it was so essential to protect it. We didn't know. We spent about 20 minutes with her. We didn't know when she left what she would do. But Senator Murkowski and Senator Collins were the two other senators who voted against uh, repeal of the ACA, along with John McCain. Senator McCain as often gets the credit because he was really a holdout and no one knew. But without Senator Murkowski and Senator Collins, that would not have happened. It is so clear to me, and you'll hear me say this throughout the week, and as I've already said it to a few people, that the voices of people of faith are more essential now than ever. There is a hunger in legislative offices. And we went mostly into Republican Senate offices and uh, talking to their staff. They were so grateful that we were there to give a viewpoint of people of faith. The day of the vote, we actually, um, there, was a, there was a group of us that convened and um, Senator Casey of Pennsylvania led us to the, not we couldn't go onto the floor of the Senate, but we were right outside uh, the gallery area where, uh, or the floor where the senators were going in. And a handful of us uh, stood and prayed uh, for the Senate and asked senators to come over and pray with us. And that was a very powerful moment. Um, I would just say that one of the joys that I have found in working with other people of faith on the Hill is, is praying out loud. Uh, they do it a lot. And um, it's been a real blessing in my life. Wheaton asks, should we not teach the kingdom even bring knowledge of the presence of love into the public square? For me, that's a resounding yes. Much of my life has been dedicated to work that allows me to live out what I believe is the kingdom of God. But the work of the Friends Committee on National Legislation actually requires me to explain why friends believe war is not the answer, why friends work to address global warming, why friends press for governmental support for food, housing, childcare, for people who are low income. Why friends advocate for a humane response to refugees and immigrants. 
why friends believe that reform in criminal justice sentencing and other structurally racist public policies are essential. Why friends continue to have a Native American advocacy program and a new congressional fellow. Our mission at the Friends Committee on National Legislation is to live a prophetic Quaker vision for a peaceful, just, and healthy planet through education, lobbying, and grassroots advocacy. As I said, we'll be talking about truth, faith, hope, courage, and love. We'll look at Bible verses, writings of Quakers, stories of witness, and I'll be telling you more stories about FCNL and how the legislative priorities that you have helped us select are faring in this political climate. How we are engaging people in the Quaker lobby far beyond the people who are in the Religious Society of Friends and what openings that may create for us as friends. Here's what I hope you'll take away from the Bible half hours. What Quakers do in the world matters. It matters for peace, for every form of justice, and for the planetary imperative. What Quakers do in worship matters. It matters for the vitality of the Religious Society of Friends. It matters for the vibrancy of our local meetings and for the individuals who participate. We have, in our own Quaker faith and practice, a discipline that equips us with tenacity and hope for these times of adversity, that teaches us to love our neighbor without exception. We can consciously learn what it means to be in the presence of love, the covenant of peace, the kingdom of God, and how that experience guides us with fear and trembling to be bold in God's service.